Welcome to 721 Live. I'm Sam Hunter. I am glad that you're with us. Thank you for joining us today. We're going to continue to talk about prayer. We're going to dive into the idea of, well, how much faith does it take for my prayers to be answered? It's going to be a good show. I'm glad you're with us. We're going to jump into that. But before we do, let me just remind you that 721 Live is the radio arm of 721 Ministries. We're a men's ministry in the upstate of South Carolina. We reach across the state. You can find out all about us if you go to 721ministries.org, 721ministries.org. On that website, we've got a lot of different options there. We've got past radio shows. We have a Vimeo channel. You can, you can see a lot of things on 721ministries.org, and you can link to or go directly to our sister website, puttinggreenblog.com, puttinggreenblog.com. We have our books for sale there. We also, you can sign up for our weekly, we call them Putting Green devotional blogs that we send out every Thursday free of charge, of course. So check that out. You can start at 721ministries.org and go from there. Again, we are in prayer. We've been in prayer for several weeks, and I think we'll be here for several more weeks because there's just so much to talk about. There's so many questions. There's so many doubts. There's so many misconceptions about prayer. How does it work? Am I doing it right? What does my faith have to be? You know, We're going to talk about that today. What size faith do I have to have to get my prayers answered? Because I have had friends and sadly, I've had friends in dire situations where their health didn't get better, the situation didn't get better, and they had, I guess, well-meaning Christian friends say, well, your prayers aren't being answered because you're not praying with enough faith. That's a, that, that does not work when we read the actual Scripture. We're going to look at a story in the, in the uh, Gospels today that disputes that. Uh, and so it's important for us to try to understand what does that mean? Because Jesus said, if we had the faith of a tiny mustard seed, we could move a mountain. He said that. All right, so I'd like to know what that means, what tiny mustard seed faith looks like. Because, see, moving a mountain, now just by the way, I can't imagine any prayer to move a mountain being anything but a show-off kind of prayer. I can't, I can't imagine that's a sincere, earnestly seeking God, but... But let's, let's focus on this mustard seed part because if you're like me, I've wondered, well, what, what qualifies as enough faith to get Jesus to move? And, and I know that's, that's, a, that's a wonder, a, a misconception, a question that we all have. But apparently, according to Jesus, mustard seed faith is tiny. So we can all breathe a sigh of relief because I, I doubt you or any different than I am, that you would say, I look, I, I don't have a giant faith. I might, I might can qualify for the tiny mustard seed, but I don't have that incredibly giant faith. But I still like a little more detail about that So, because I want to feel better about my level of faith, and, and I want you to. So let's just go back to Hebrews 11.6, because there we're given the definition of mustard seed faith. Here's how it reads. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Without faith, and I substitute trust for faith, and I'll talk about that in a moment. Without trust, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe. Must believe what? Because here's the definition of mustard seed faith. Here's what you must believe when you come to him. This is the mustard seed faith that could move a mountain, but it's all you have to have. Two things believes that he exists and that he will respond 
to you when you are earnestly seeking him. I think if you're praying to move a mountain, you're probably not earnestly seeking him. You might be showing off, but but that's all you have to do to qualify for mustard seed, tiny faith. You believe he's real, and you believe that he will respond to you. And the wonderful thing about the scripture is he won't just respond, he'll reward you. We, we, we don't serve a bread and water God. We, we, we serve a God of lavishness. He loves to lavish love on us and lavish gifts on us, always knowing that the gifts for you would not be the same as the gifts for me, but they'll always be the best gift we could ever want or, or even ask for, Ephesians 3.20, ever immeasurably more than we could ask or even imagine. But it is without trust, it is impossible to please God. That doesn't mean that God is hard to please. Trust, no relationship works without trust. Trust is the, it, it, trust is what you have to have to have a relationship. It's the currency of relationships. It really is. So I substitute trust for faith because I just feel like it has more traction. Faith is a little vague and ambiguous. To me, if I say I have faith in you, that seems that I have faith in what you will do. But if I say I trust you, then I trust who you are. And that matters because without faith it is impossible to please, without trust it is impossible to please God. We want to be able to be in that relationship where it's just moving back and forth between the two of us, where it's that mustard seed faith. So already we can see that mustard seed faith is about trusting God. But what is it about God that we are trusting? And without trust, it is impossible to please God. Well, exactly what is it we're trusting? And the answer is we're trusting his character. We trust who he is. We trust he is a loving, compassionate, and involved Heavenly Father. That We trust that he cares about you and us individually as well as the details of our lives, because that's where so many of us get hung up is the details of our lives. Do we, is he really involved in the details? Does, he may love me, you know, God is love and all that, but does he get involved in the details? And Jesus says over and over, yes, he's in the details of your life. He knows everything about what's going on. He even knows the number of hairs on your head. We trust in who he is, his character. Peter, the apostle Peter, says it like this in in his first letter, 1 Peter 5, 6-7, Humble yourselves, therefore, unto God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Yes, he cares for you. You listen to me right now. He cares for you. And he cares about the details in your life. So see, we trust his character, first and foremost. Because at times, his due time doesn't fit my due time. And I know you've experienced that. Peter says that we humble ourselves under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. But that due time can be a worrisome thing, can't it? But if we trust in his character and who he is, then we don't. our faith doesn't wobble around when it doesn't match up with our due time. One other thing about that, what, Jesus, what Peter is saying, the Holy Spirit through Peter, the Greek word he uses for cast, Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Cast is the word a fisherman uses to throw a, toss a net away from the boat. So the Holy Spirit, through Peter, is encouraging us to throw our anxieties not just away from us, but onto Jesus. Cast your, all your anxieties on him. Give them a good toss. Get rid of them. And why? 
Well, it's simple because he cares for you and he cares for the details of your life. So I have a, I have a kind of a helpful story about this, this idea of, yes, I always trust what God is going to do. I do. I mean, I may falter and I may wobble a little bit, but ultimately I trust what he's going to do. But even more so, I trust his character. I trust who he is. And there are times when I don't understand what he's doing or the due time doesn't work or whatever, but I trust him. And here's a little story. A ten, little 10-year-old boy, is, he, his father's a surgeon, and he's out playing on the playground during recess, and a mean boy comes up to him and sneers, my dad says that your dad sticks people with knives and cuts them up. The little boy, you know, he's 10 years old. He doesn't really understand what his father does, but, you know, as a surgeon. So he ponders this for a moment, and then he said, well, you know, my father's a good man. He's a loving father who cares about me and my family and about people. So if he's cutting them up, it's for a good reason. And that's mustard seed faith. It really is that tiny and that simple. I may not understand it, but I know who he is, and I know what he's going to do is always going to be good. See, the reason I want to stay on Hebrews eleven six, is because this faith idea is something that's a big stumbling block for most of us. So without faith, it is impossible to trust God, impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he's real and that he will respond in the best way. And wouldn't that be just like any child coming to a loving parent? You know, they're, you know they're your parents, you know they're real, and then you know that they're going to respond in just the right way. Maybe not the way you ask, but just the right way because they love you. So I think in terms of, you know, we seek his presence, not his presence. Now, when I did this with the men, I said, you tell me how I spell the first presence and how I spell the second presence. We seek his, we're seeking him. That's what Hebrews 11, he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So we're seeking his presence, not his presence. So the second word is presence as in gifts, P-R-E-S-E-N-T-S. So now we can fill in the first word. We're seeking his presence, P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E. We're seeking his presence, not his presence that he's going to give us. And we see this, and I think this whole thing of, what does it look like to earnestly seek him? Because that's what Hebrews eleven six says, that, that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Let's talk for a moment about what that looks like to earnestly seek him. And I think this whole idea of great faith and earnestly seeking him gets tied up in a nice little bow in this story about what I call the desperate dad. It's Mark 9, starting at verse 14, and I'm just going to read it through because I think this story this, that actually happened Told in all the Gospels, I mean, told in the first three Gospels, this, is, this just puts to rest any idea that you have to have a great, giant faith to get Jesus to do what you want him to do, to get God to do what you want him to do. I'll always come back and ask the question, do you really, are you, are you so narcissistic? Do you really think you're that smart that you know better than what God and, and what he should do? I mean, I, you know, so many people... And I've probably done this, and I know I've done it in the past. We approach God, and they say, I have some questions. I have some questions, and I have some suggestions. I have some questions, and I have some suggestions. I have some questions about the way you do things, and I have some, some suggestions about the way you ought to do things. Well, this dad, the desperate dad, 
Let's just pick it up at Mark 9, verse 14. It's a very familiar story, but let's, let's just do a deep dive in this. When they came to the other disciples, that would be Jesus, James, and John, and Peter. They're coming down from the, the Mount of Transfiguration. They saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them, arguing, I guess, with the disciples. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. Just picture that now. I mean, there's Jesus. Let's go. Let's run over there. So Jesus walks up. He says, well, what are you arguing with them about? I guess he's asking the disciples. He could be asking the, the teachers of the law, the scribes. We don't know what he's arguing about, what they're arguing about, but we get the answer somewhat in the way the father responds. A man in the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. That must be where the argument is. The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, say, you, you claim that you've already been casting out spirits because they had. Jesus had sent them out prior to this, giving them the Holy Spirit power to cast out demons and heal people. They cannot do it now. So they, they're, you know, they're phonies. They're hypocrites. They're playing a role. They're, they're, they're play-acting when they say that they... And their and they're master. You know, Jesus has already been accused of casting out demons by the power of, of Beelzebub. So they got this debate going on, and Jesus just sighs and says, You unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. Bring the boy to me. So they brought him, verse 20, Mark 9, so they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? Can we pause for a moment? See, we read these stories like they're newspaper accounts. I'd rather us read them like a novel. Can we picture, I have been around people who had seizures, and it is a rattling thing it is it is it is a shaky thing it, it is so unpleasant to be around someone having a seizure for, obviously for the person having it but also you're observing this and it just it happens like that so here's this boy i mean we're told that he's you know he's foaming at the mouth he's rolling around on the ground and apparently jesus is standing right next to him and speaks very matter-of-factly to the father how long has he been like this you know this just picture the scene the father says, from childhood, it has often thrown him into, into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity and help us. Take pity on us and help us. You see, last week, we looked at the Roman centurion. We looked at the palace official, the ruler of the synagogue, three important men, we looked at the woman who had been hemorrhaging for 12 years and the Syrophoenician woman who came up to Jesus and said, look, I'll take the crumbs. Three important men, two unimportant women, they all came with the same approach that this father does. Can you help us? Can you help me? The centurion said, I don't even deserve to be helped, but can you help me? Can you help my servant? The Syrophoenician woman said, I I'll take the crumbs. And let me pause for a moment. That has really made an indentation in me. I'll take the crumbs. I've been walking around for the last 10 days after the, really the Holy Spirit show. I've been reading that passage 
for years, 20 years and, and 25 years, whatever. And suddenly the Holy Spirit just made it clear to me, are you willing to just take the crumbs, Sam? And what a glorious thing that is because the crumbs from God Almighty, my Heavenly Father, they're better than anything I'd ever get anywhere in this world. Yes, I'll take the crumbs. Can you help me? I don't deserve for you to help me, so I'm not coming with any attitude. I'm not coming with questions and suggestions. I'm asking for help. I don't deserve it. And you know what? I'll take the crumbs. How freeing is that? I'll take the crumbs. Of course, we know our Heavenly Father is a God of lavishness, so he's not going to just give me the crumbs. But if it's crumbs, I'll take the crumbs. They're better than anything else I'll get in this world. The, the man says, can you take pity on us and help us if you, if you can do anything? And Jesus says, if you can. And the if in the Greek is an emphatic if. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. And immediately the boy's father gives the rallying cry for all of us. And this is why this story is so significant. I do believe. I do trust but I'm nowhere near trusting what I think will make this work. you got to help me with where I don't trust. Help me, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Right there on the spot we see mustard seed faith. He doesn't have enough. Now notice Jesus doesn't say, well, you need to go back and, and work on that faith issue, get it a little stronger, and then come back. He doesn't say that. The man is asking Jesus to move a mountain to save his son who's been from childhood this way. I'm I, I trying to believe Jesus, but I don't have enough to believe. I mean, how many times over your life have you, have you wanted to go to, to Jesus or your Heavenly Father for a prayer request, but you didn't do it because you didn't have the faith? You knew you didn't have the faith. You knew you couldn't conjure it up and get it just right, and so why even try? And right here, Jesus... Now, what happens next? Because this man has already admitted, okay, I'm trying, but I don't have any, I'm, I'm nowhere close. When Jesus saw that the crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And boom, it was done. The man didn't qualify for great faith. He qualified for mustard seed faith. He came to Jesus. He knew he was real. He knew he could help him. And he hoped, with all of his hope, that he would respond. He didn't even qualify for Hebrews 11.6. He didn't, he didn't trust but a little bit, but he came. And he just opened himself up. And Jesus answered that prayer. Not because he had such great faith, but because he came to Jesus and said, Help me. And that's what we want to do. We don't have to worry about our faith. We don't have to worry about our level of faith. We don't have to worry that we have 50 prayer warriors praying for us. That's fine if you want to get 50 prayer warriors, but you don't have to have that. This man's got nothing. Now, what's really interesting is what happens next. When, after Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. But if I read the story again, Jesus didn't pray. When he's getting ready to divide the loaves and fishes, he prays. When he's getting ready to do a lot of miracles, he prays. But he doesn't pray here. But yet he says this kind can come out only by prayer. So let's circle back around to this whole prayer series. What is Jesus saying when he says this kind can come out only by prayer and he didn't pray? He's prayed up. 
He's in that conversational prayer life with his heavenly father. And this is what I want to instill in you. This is the one thing I don't have any interest in trying to teach you how to pray. I just want you to pray, but realize that so much of prayer is just a conversational walk through life, talking with God about what we are doing together. That's Dallas Willard from from, uh, The Divine Conspiracy. A conversational walk through life, talking with God about what we are doing together. If you are doing that more and more, not as a discipline, but as something that just becomes natural, you know, I talk to myself all the time. Why don't I just talk to my Heavenly Father as much or more? In that, if I'm living that way as Jesus was clearly living that way, then in that moment where there's a mountain to be moved, God's going to do what God's going to do. Jesus didn't have to stop in that moment. I was thinking about this. If you can, if we said, well, okay, he, if, if, if it's about trusting him, how am I going to learn to trust my Heavenly Father? Well, I'm going to have to get to know Him. Because the more I know Him, the more I'm going to trust Him. How am I going to get to know Him? Well, certainly I'm going to read His, path, his Word to me and His written Word, but I'm going to spend time with Him. If I can just get you to start. I've had several of the men since we've been doing this saying, you know, I'm doing it now, and it's making all the difference in the world, just talking on and off throughout the day. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus Praying continually is that conversational walk through life. And Jesus had it. And in the time where he needed needed it, he already had it. He didn't have to stop. That, my friend, puts to bed any concern about whether you have giant enough faith to get Jesus to move. He's going to do the best thing in every situation. And you don't have to come in with the greatest faith possible. Just the faith of this, little, of this father who said, I'm trying to believe it. I can't get there. I'm trying, but I can't get there. Isn't that refreshing? Isn't that a relief that we can be just like this father? Because I've done that. I said, look, I, Father, I not look, but Father, I'm, I, believe, I believe I can come and ask for this. I believe that it's something that, I mean, I'm your son. I'm not trying to gain anything. This is not self-seeking. This is earnestly seeking you, but I, I honestly... You know, I don't have to try to fool you. You know I don't really trust this, trust you. And I trust you. I don't know. I don't have the faith to believe that my prayer is going to get answered the way I'm asking it. But Jesus says, you don't have to have that. Just mustard seed faith. To just contrast that before we finish the show today, well, let's go to the rich young ruler, which is a contrast in sorts from a earnestly seeking God to a self-seeking young man. The young man goes to Jesus, and this is Mark 10, which is the next chapter. And he says, good teacher, what must I, key word here, do to inherit eternal life? Now, Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So he's really saying, are you calling me God? Because God's the only one who's good. So are you calling me God? Do you really believe I'm God? You remember Whoever comes to him, Hebrews eleven six, must believe that he's real, that he is who he said he is, and that he will respond, he will reward. He's asking him, do you even believe who I am who I am? And then he goes on to say, you know the commandments. And he gives him, these next commandments are all in the man-to-man commandments. You know, the first commandment is no other gods. The second is no other idols. The third is don't take the Lord's name in vain. The fourth is the Sabbath. Sabbath. Those are all man-to-God relationships. Then honor your parents, no murder, no adultery, no stealing, no false testimony, no coveting. Those are all man-to-man 
human to human types. He gives him he gives him this this answer that falls in the bottom category. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother. Now I know I know the master teacher here knows exactly what's going on. He's 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 reeling this young man in. He gives him these commandments that he can do. He can do not murdering, not committing adultery. He can do not stealing. He can do not giving false testimony. He can do honoring your father and mother. He can do those things. He says he's done them. Teacher, he declared, all these things I've kept since I was a boy. And I imagine Jesus is going, really? You really think you've kept all those? But let's go on to something that's going to challenge you. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack. Now let's ask, what is the one thing he likes? The only thing that matters is what we've talked about, trust. He doesn't trust God. He trusts his possessions. So he falters on the first two commandments. No other gods and no other idols. You can't have idols without having another god because an idol is a god. So the first two go hand in hand. Jesus says the one thing you lack is trust. The young man says, what must I do to be saved? He's not seeking Jesus. He's seeking presence from Jesus. Gifts, not his presence. That's obvious. The dad who had just this tiny little bit of mustard seed faith, he gets a miracle, a mountain moved. This young man is not earnestly seeking God. He's seeking what he can do for him. Why does this young man go to Jesus in the first place? He's got a squeaky clean resume. Like so many churchians in the South, he hears a voice inside, that Holy Spirit saying, you're not there. You're missing it. You're trying to do everything right. And you're a good performer. And you got a good resume. But you know in your heart that you're not saved. You know this resume is not going to get it. So Jesus gives him that. He gives him the one challenge that he can't meet. And that's trusting God. Trusting Jesus over all the stuff that's propping him up. So when we look at this one, well, one thing he lacks is trust. And Jesus says it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. But he could also say it's hard for a man who's rich in resume, in his resume, in his performance, a, a man who's rich in his social status, a man who's rich in his uh, knowledge, head knowledge over heart knowledge. It's, you know, his, all these things, anyone can be rich in any number of things that gets in the way of them entering the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus said, all you have to have when you come to me in prayer, not like this young man who's asking what can I do and what will you do for me? But I'm here. I need your help. I, I'm trying. I believe. Help me with my unbelief. So let's instead seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. May you learn to seek first Jesus, asking him for help, knowing you do not deserve it, but willing to take the crumbs, even though Jesus will give you the riches of the kingdom. I'm Sam Hunter. This is 721 Live. So long. God's peace to you. I hope to see you next Friday.